So these are these vipers. They are were considered to be uh, deceitful. That is, they they camouflage themselves and then they struck. They were very dangerous because they their venom could kill. And in this sense, they, the whole idea is they're evil. It's evil to kill people. That's the whole idea. He's saying you are a bunch of you are a group of people who kills other people. That that's the indication. And you do it deceitfully. Right? You are dangerous. You are evil. You are wicked. You are deceitful. Welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday, weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3, and if you'll stand, I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. We're working our way through the message of the herald, John the Baptist, and we'll continue to see this morning that message and the strength of it as proclaimed to a, a, an audience that was sure they didn't need to hear it. So let's remember again that nothing in Scripture is written without a need for us to hear and to respond. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Please be seated. I had a precious privilege yesterday of going around a neighborhood close to, close to the church here, knocking on doors, presenting the solo conference, but also offering an opportunity to uh, hear the truth of the gospel. And I was talking to one young man, I was at his door, and uh, we kind of talked about what the Bible is. He said, well, I think it's, you know, maybe some autobiographical uh, writings, and, and yes, yeah, some of it is the Word of God. And then I asked him, well, what would you consider the good news to be? What's the good news? And he said, well, the good news is that Jesus loves you, and He's there for you. He'll, just, he'll always be there for you. And I proceeded to ask him, I said, well, I'd asked you what the good news is, and that is certainly good news, and that is certainly true, that Jesus loves you and he is there for you, except that you need to understand something before you understand that. I said, do you know what the bad news is? 
He said, I'm not really sure what you mean. I said, well, the bad news is that we will spend eternity in hell if we do not put faith and trust in Christ. He looked, you know, and asked him, do you believe in an eternal hell? And he said, yes. And then I asked him the question that so often people ask me when I am presenting the gospel to them. They will say this, why would a loving God send someone to hell? And that's what I asked him. Because he said he believed, as it were, in a loving God. He believed in hell. So my question to him was, well, why would God said, if he's loving, if that's all he is, that's, that's was what was being kind of intimated in our conversation, if that's who he is, then why would he send someone to hell? And he stopped, and, and he got kind of this puzzled look on his face, and he said, I have no idea. So I said, well, let me explain to you why a loving God would send people to hell, because he is also a just and holy God. And he must ultimately save them from his own wrath against sin. And we went on to discuss the nature of true sin, the nature of, of God's justice and his holiness and the, and the righteousness of hell, and then the need to repent of sin so that the love of God might be received. And when we got done, I, I asked him, I said, well, is, is that what you have done? He said he went to a church in the area. I said, is that what you have done, to repent of sin and to trust in Christ? And he paused for a fairly lengthy amount of time and he said, well, yes, and, 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 then, and, then, and then we were done. I, I don't know before the Lord where he stands, and yet the fact that he'd never heard, or at least didn't remember if he ever had, the idea that God is just and holy and that he would send, he will send everyone who does not put faith and trust in him to eternal hell is something that is just, it reminds me that that is very much the place where our world is in today, and that's very much how the gospel is being presented. It comes first with, here is the king, he loves you, he cares for you, he has a plan for you, Trust the king, and he'll be there for you. And that is true. And yet, what is not being presented so often is why you need to trust the king and why it is that he, that king is not, your, is not your savior until you repent of sin. And so, as we've been looking in Matthew chapter 3, God understands the necessity of a proper message. And of course, when he sends the herald to the king, he sends him with the proper beginning message. And that is what? Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. There's no way to enter into this kingdom unless you first recognize that you are not worthy of the kingdom. And that's what the young man standing at that door did not recognize, it seems to me. And that's what so many people that I talk to when I go to doors and when I talk to people generally, they do not recognize that they don't deserve to enter the kingdom. Almost without exception, they will tell me, regardless of whether I can convince them that they're a sinner, that they've done things wrong, at the end of the day, at the end of the discussion, what they will say is, God will let me in. In fact, very interestingly, with that young man, again, we were talking about God's justice and his standard, and I said if a murderer was, was in the courtroom and he just looked at, he looked at the judge and he said, look, I'm sorry, um, please let me off. I said, would the judge let him off? And he paused and he said, well, yeah, he knew where I was going. He said, well, well God's justice system is different than ours. And I said, it's different how? Well, certainly it is different than ours. It, in fact, it's much more fair. It's much more just. And there isn't any way that that murderer could end up being pardoned unless someone paid his fine. But we seem to be absolutely convinced as a society, as a people, and really in general, that somehow God will pardon us simply on the fact that his forgiveness will overcome the sin. But we don't even understand how that's possible. Now, People can be motivated to repentance for a variety of reasons, and that's one of the things that we will see this morning. We've already seen several in, for several weeks that people were coming to John, they were repenting of sin, they were, and we talked about true repentance, a, an inner heart change that recognizes the, the weightiness of sin, that we indeed are personally sinful, that we deserve an eternal hell, and it seems clearly that some of these were coming for that reason. And now we're going to move, however, into John the Baptist's rebuke, where he, there are some who come for an inappropriate reason. 
See, people can be motivated towards repentance for because they are tired of the consequences of their sin, because they feel bad about having harmed someone else, because may, they may be convicted by God's holy standard, or they may even repent because, well, everyone else is doing it. There was a bunch of other people going down to the altar. It seems like that's, you know, there's other people around me doing this. However, there's only one true reason for repentance. And that is a sincere desire to turn from the sin that grieves the heart of a holy God, steals from his glory, and results in deserved eternal punishment. So what we'll see this morning is that true repentance is never an outward show for the purpose of pleasing ourselves or others, but a transformation of the inner man that reflects an understanding of and a desire to flee from the certain wrath to come. Again, true repentance is never an outward show for the purpose of pleasing ourselves or others, but it is a transformation of the inner man that reflects an understanding of and a desire to flee from the certain wrath to come. Now, in our text, we've already seen the message of John the Baptist. The message was repent, in verse 2, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We have seen the person of John the Baptist. He was predicted by the prophet Isaiah. He was dressed like and had a ministry that was similar to the prophet Elijah as he comes to be the herald, the forerunner to the king. And we saw his work, that he was baptizing in the Jordan and that he was used by God to bring many to repentance. There's the work of the Spirit of God going on here, bringing people to conviction, drawing them out into the wilderness to hear this simple message powerful message, and to hear this powerful man who is preaching to them of their need to repent of sin. But now let's look at what happens when John recognizes some who come that are not sincere. Remember, he's been baptizing, many have been coming, and he has been baptizing them. It it says in verse 4, or excuse me, verse 5, that they were, verse 6, that they were, he was baptizing them as they confessed their sins. The confession being an indication, again, of the heart change. They're, they're expressing their agreement with God about their sin. They're confessing that, and then they're being baptized as the external sign that that repentance has taken place on the basis of their confession. They're confessing their sin. So now let's see the rebuke of the herald. Whom does he rebuke? Why? How? And what does he tell them will happen? So verse 7, but... Strong contrast here to those who had been coming, confessing their sins. And that's very important. Little words in the Bible are important. So what that indicates to us is when he talks to the Pharisees and Sadducees, the group that's coming, is that they were not coming, confessing their sins. They're just coming. As we will see, they are coming for baptism. They were all about that, but they aren't confessing their sins. So he's baptizing those who confess, but here, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, no mention of confession of sin. He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What kind of a response is that? You've got all these people that are coming. He's baptizing them, apparently. They're confessing their sins. And then you've got the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders of the time. We'll talk about them in a minute. They're coming, apparently down to the water. They're maybe even coming out into the water, getting ready to be baptized. And whatever John, who knows what he said to them. We don't have any recording of the conversation, what kind of questions he would ask. But apparently he can recognize that there's... They're not confessing their sin. And so either they're standing on the bank or they're in the water, wherever that might be. He looks at them and he rebukes them rather than saying, oh, I'm so glad you've come. Just come down quick. We'll dunk you. We'll baptize you. Do you recognize that there's a God? Whatever he might have said, he looks them in the eyes and in front of everyone who was there. Remember, there are huge crowds there. He said, he says, you brood of vipers, you snakes, you deadly, venomous serpents. Wow. Well, who are these people that he's rebuking? Let's first take a look at that. So the objects of the rebuke, right? And by the way, it says, but when he saw many, and I think this is another key to us. 
Repentance is not group. You're not group repent. We'll all come together. We'll make a decision. We're all going to repent. It would appear that the Pharisees and Sadducees have kind of made a decision. Look, this, this thing is big. John the Baptist is big. There's all these people going out. So we'll kind of come as a group and we'll take care of what we need to so we can stay in the mix. We don't want to get set aside. So there are, they are coming. There's many of them coming, and it would appear that they're coming as a group, kind of all coming together. They're not confessing their sins as nearly as we can tell from the text. So who are these people first? And, and we will speak much, obviously, of the Pharisees and Sadducees in the days to come. We're just kind of building our understanding of them here, and I'll only mention them fairly briefly. The Pharisees were the religious legalists of the day. Right? They were the leaders that the people commonly looked to. They were, they were the leaders of the common people when it came to religious matters. They, they're, the sect of the Pharisees probably originated back during the time of, of Judas Maccabeus in the second century when he's revolting against Antiochus Epiphanes who, who desecrates the temple. So they were holy men of their day in the second century, those who were revolting against the evil that was going on. And so they kind of establish a whole separate group that were, were zealous for the law, were zealous for Jewish nationalism, at least at the beginning, right? And, and their whole purpose was to pursue, their stated purpose was to pursue righteousness, and this became more and more legalistic, more and more external. They were political conservatives who hated the Romans and desired the renewal of the Jewish kingdom, and they were ones who built around the law, the scriptures that they had, the Old Testament scriptures, they built around it a whole series of additional regulations, some 300 or more and really, it was those regulations that they preached and taught and lived much more so than the actual regulations of Scripture. Later on, Jesus castigates them for teaching as Scripture, teaching as God's words, the doctrines of men. That's really his primary uh, condemnation of them besides their own hypocrisy. Right? So they have all of these extra laws that they are adding to make themselves look even more spiritual. They are protecting the law, as it were. And so they're the ultimate externalists. That is, all of these washings and other things that they would add to make sure that you know, they never even got close to violating the law of Scripture, when, as we will see in their hearts, they were continually violating those things. They were generally well-liked by the people. And, but, and yet, this is fascinating. They were, they were, they were well known and well liked, it seems, amongst the common man, but they carefully separated themselves from both the Gentiles and from most of their own countrymen, most of the Jews, because they considered them to be base sinners. If you weren't a Pharisee, it took you about a year to get in to become a Pharisee. You had to go through all these, it's kind of a little bit like spiritual boot camp. You know, if you get into the Navy SEALs, you have to, you know, run on the beach and you got, you know, three or four weeks of being tortured and, and yet being yelled at and all these things happening. Well, it seemed like it was a similar thing to the Pharisees. They were the spiritual seals. So you had all these things you had to go through in order to become and enter into this elite group, and that set them apart in their minds from everyone else. In fact, if they walked amongst the, if they were out in the marketplace, which they often were, if they were out among the people, they would then, when they, when they left those public areas, they would go through all of these ritual washings. And usually they would do this also in public. They would separate themselves out, and then they would do all of these washings and rituals to wash off the dirt and sin of the common people that they had touched. And yet they were still loved by the people as those who were truly spiritual. Those are the Pharisees. Jesus recognized their pursuit of righteousness. He says in Matthew 5.20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. He recognized that their stated purpose was righteousness, that that was, that was what they said that they were doing, and they were pursuing these external signs of it. But he condemns them for their teaching and for their hypocrisy. Matthew 16, 6, Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That would be their teaching, the things they taught. 
And then Matthew 22, 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom from people and you do not enter it yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So Jesus will have much to say about them. Now we are introduced to them as they come to John the Baptist. Now you have the Pharisees, or you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is a second group, and these would be religious liberals or those who really had little interest in religion at all. Right? Now they held, interestingly enough, they held to the first five books of the Bible. And they said that no, the, the Torah, the, the Pentateuch, right? They said that that no doctrine that couldn't be proved from those first five books was real. So they didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in angels, whole series of things that the rest of the Old Testament describes that they did not believe. So they considered themselves holy in th to that extent, and they didn't add laws to the scripture, but they removed whole pieces of the scripture, all of the Old Testament except the first five books, and they didn't pay much attention to that either. Right? It was kind of in name only. They were connected with the priests most often, and it was the high priests who came from the Sadducees generally. Right? They were, uh, it would be very small, a much smaller group than the Pharisees, and they were largely in political control. And that political control was tied tightly to the religious control. In fact, it was the Sadducees who were the ones in charge of the temple, uh, all of the things that went on around the temple, the selling of the animals, the exchanging of money. And so Jesus comes in continual conflict with them as well. They believed in human autonomy, complete freedom of will. They did not hold to the decree of God that God had a plan or purpose that he was working out. They denied the immortality of the soul as well as the resurrection of the body. And, and we know that both of these groups, right, and, and as they're coming to John to be baptized, we understand, we'll see that later on, they're referenced as those who never truly entered into that baptism. Well, one of the reasons is John refused to let them hear. But in Luke 7.30, we read this last week, it says the Pharisees and lawyers, and uh, later on we, we see where the Sadducees did this as well, they rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. All right, so these two groups are both similar in that sense that on really different sides of the religious and political spectrum. And by the way, the Sadducees would have been kind of in with the political leaders, right? They, they liked the Romans. Well, at least they, they liked the power that the Romans brought them. So they were not nationalist in that sense. And so were despised. They were one of the reasons they were despised for that reason. Now, John MacArthur just gives kind of a comparison of these two groups. He says this, the Pharisees were ritualistic. The Sadducees were rationalistic. The Pharisees were strict separatists. The Sadducees were compromising collaborators. The Pharisees were commoners. Most of them had a trade, while the Sadducees were aristocrats. Both groups had members among the scribes and were represented in the priesthood and in the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin. Yet they were in almost constant opposition to one another. During New Testament times, about the only common ground they exhibited was opposition to Christ and his followers. So coming from very different sides of things, and yet it is fascinating the Pharisees and Sadducees, even at the beginning, are coming together to be baptized by John. Now, I'm sure they weren't intermingling. I'm going to say like two, the two groups, here come the Pharisees, you know, maybe doing their washings and crying unclean to everybody around them. You got the Sadducees coming and their arrogance and, and, and with all of their political and, and political clout and religious clout. They're both coming to John. So they're both drawn Right, by this, by the need, as we will see, to stay in the mix when it comes to leading the people. They were constantly fighting for who would lead, and so they would battle anyone else who came to try to take their influence. Probably not many groups we could compare them to today, except that for both of them, they had the right God. That is, they believed in the God of the Bible, or at least, at least the Old Testament, the first five books at least. They had the right God. 
Right? They had the right scriptures, at least a part of them, but they had a completely wrong understanding of salvation and of their own righteousness. And that's really the key. Both of them believed that they were all, both groups believed that they were already righteous. And that is going to be their downfall. And of course, that's the downfall of any and every man is that they believe ultimately that they will be okay before a holy God because they are not as bad as others. And that was particularly true with the scribes and Pharisees. We are better. We are the elite. We have no need ultimately of righteousness because we've already done it. We've taken care of that. Add on to that the fact that they were Jews, that they were God's chosen ethnic people, and you have an unassailable conviction that there was no need for salvation. That's really what's going on with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Whereas the common people, as we have seen, many of them were willing to admit, were ready to admit by, by the grace of God, that they were in fact sinful in need of entering into the kingdom only through the standard of righteousness that God requires. The Pharisees and Sadducees rejected that. So that's the groups. We'll hear much more about them as we move through the New Testament, as we move through Matthew. That's the, uh, the groups that he rebuked. Right? So that, that's first, the object of rebuke. And now we have the occasion for rebuke. Right? These Pharisees and Sadducees, what are they doing? They are coming for baptism. And yet, as we have said, right, without any mention of the confession of sin. Right? John sees through. So they're coming. They say, we want to enter into this external ritual. We want to demonstrate to the people, it seems, is their motivation, that we too are, uh, you know, are coming underneath this teaching, that we too are repenting, but without any real repentance. And of course, that was their entire problem. They wanted to look righteous, appear righteous, but nothing in their heart was actually drawn to their need for, for the righteousness of Christ. Nothing. John sees through their facade that they are jumping on the latest spiritual bandwagon. And they had to be part of what the majority of the people thought was, the, was truly spiritual. Otherwise, they were in danger of losing their influence. So John sees right through this, and we will now look at the content of the rebuke. So uh, the occasion is as they come to be baptized, they want to enter into this spiritual ritual. That's all it is for them. They want to enter into the fervor and the excitement of what's going on so that they can stay involved. And I will have to say that, unfortunately, many times when people come to Christ, and particularly when it's part of a, uh, you know, the, the things that wrap around emotionalism and other things that we try to maybe whip up a crowd or whip up the frenzy for people to repent, that that is often the reason that they come. Right? We're going to come to stay involved. We're going to come to be part of this bigger thing that's going on. We want to come without the proper reasons. And that's what he tells them, right? He said to them, for he first addresses himself directly to these two groups, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Right? Now, everyone else is listening. He'll expand this message. Really, it looks like at, at, at the end, towards the end, everyone's being involved in this, right? all the people who are listening. But first he tells them, the first content of this rebuke is that you are coming for the wrong reason. Right? You're not here for the right reason. Because he says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Or I still think probably the emphasis would be, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That is, who, you know, who told you, Pharisees and Sadducees, that you ought to come because, as we will see, you don't think you need to flee from the wrath to come. So who, who told you that you had to do this? The other people, well, I understand that. But you, uh, why are you coming? And, you know, when we hear the words or the, the phrase, you brood of vipers, it isn't like that sounded any better to them than it sounds to us. Right? If somebody called you a brood of vipers, a bunch of venomous, dangerous snakes, you wouldn't be happy. Well, they weren't either, and perhaps even more so as we see some of the connotations involved in this particular phrase. You brood of vipers, he calls them, 
Really, the word he uses are for the small desert snakes that he would have been well acquainted with because they were in the very wilderness where he was. And these particular snakes were considered to be very deceitful, as though they had somehow some plan in this. But nonetheless, they, they looked like dried sticks. You might remember that the Apostle Paul, when in Acts 28, well, yeah, Acts 28, when he goes and, and he's on the island of Malta, he, someone collects a bunch of sticks. He's collecting the sticks, and as he, they take them to the fire, a viper comes out. It's the same word. He looked like one of the sticks. And he comes out and fashions himself, fastens himself on the Apostle Paul's hand, shakes him off into the fire. I mean, that's the, that's the, the nature of this snake. It was very easy to mistake for something else, and then you'd reach for it, and it would turn and latch on, and the venom was extremely poisonous. It would kill you rather quickly. Of course, remember the Apostle Paul, when he was bitten, what did the, what did the natives say? He's going to die. In fact, he's being judged by God. Very fascinating. They turned it around just a, a minute later to say, he's from God. But anyway, that's for another story. The people are like that, but we won't go there this morning. So these are these vipers. They are, were considered to be uh, deceitful. That is, they, they camouflaged themselves and then they struck. They were very dangerous because they, their venom could kill. And in this sense, they, the whole idea is they're evil. It's evil to kill people. That's the whole idea. He's saying you are a bunch of, you are a group of people who kills other people. That, that's the indication. And you do it deceitfully. Right? You are dangerous. You are evil. You are wicked. You are deceitful. And this is what he tells them as they come. Now, you might be thinking, John, the bat, that's a pretty strong message. So probably when Jesus came, all right, because John's coming with a thunderous Elijah-like message, probably when Jesus came, he would never say something like that because Jesus came in a more mild fashion, right? He came eating and drinking, as it were. He came dressed like the people. He came walking in Jerusalem. I'm sure he had a different message for them. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. <music>